And without further ado, Christopher S. Thank you very much. I'm so, so pleased to be here this morning. It's, uh, it's such a great feeling to be able to come into a room where you already know so many of the faces. Um, it's very comforting. And, uh, and I'm grateful to the committee to ask me to uh, be here today to share my experience, strength, and hope with you all. Um, some asked me before the meeting, you know, uh, how would you like to be introduced? And so I was like, well, you know, something simple. Um, girl used to be in the San Jose Fellowship, makes her grand homecoming debut. <laughs> you know, keep it simple. Um, I'm so uh, glad to be part, have been a part of this fellowship at one time. Um, it was instrumental in my recovery, and uh, so many of you were a big part of that. So I'm going to share just a little bit of, of what happened, what it's like, or what, what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. I... Uh, <clears throat> I was a little apprehensive um, after looking at your website because it's so fabulous. We don't have anything really that fabulous in Sacramento. And it just pointed out that I am coming to Silicon Valley. This is the high-tech capital of the world. And uh, so I thought, well, they're so sophisticated there. <laughs> How will I be able to share my experience strength and hope in a way that I can really connect with some of them? So I developed this fabulous PowerPoint presentation. And... Um, <laughs> But of course, if I had brought my laptop and set it all up, that would have been a little bit over the top. So I decided um, if you will just suspend your imagination for a moment and indulge me, I would like to present to you what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. In this first slide, you see the Capitol Dome. It's the, it's the state capitol. It's Sacramento, it's where I'm from. It's where I was born, where I was raised, and I'll probably die there. But really, many worse things could happen. In this next slide, you'll see my family. We've got all of five of us kids, and my mother is the one standing there with the beverage in her hand. Please do not make fun of my glasses or that I have my hand on my hip. This was, this was a great... It's great concern to me later in life, and we'll get to that later. But, but as you can see, uh, we all sort of look happy, and that was the face that we wanted really to present to the public. We weren't always successful, but we tried. In this next picture, we'll fast forward to high school because I only have 30 minutes. So that's me in high school, and I have to admit, I did take license with Photoshop in this one and put that cheerleading outfit on myself. But... <laughs> It's really how I always wanted to look in high school. I was a mess. I was uh, the oldest of five kids in an alcoholic home. And so um, I often had this overdeveloped sense of responsibility. My mother was a single parent. You'll notice that my dad wasn't in that picture. And that's because he left when I was at an early age. And so my mother started drinking, and she would not come home sometimes um, until very late. And then as her drinking progressed, sometimes she didn't come home at all. And uh, so I really was sort of in charge, and, um, and this actually um, developed into a, a very symbiotic relationship that I had with my mother. Um, she was the, the main alcoholic in my life that brought me to the doors of Al-Anon, but I have to tell you, since I've gotten here, I've gotten many other alcoholics in my life. And um, thank God for the 12 steps that have allowed me to coexist and live with other alcoholics in my life, because some of them are in recovery, but some of them are not and uh, it's really okay. I'm, I'm allowed to coexist with alcoholics 
regardless of their drinking status. Um, so uh, just before I graduated from high school, we moved to this house here in Citrus Heights. Uh, yes, those are pit bulls in the front yard. Um, my mother got into a relationship with a man who she became engaged to, and um, he didn't like us. And um, so we moved out. I mean, not my mom, just us. So five kids, we lived down the street in a different house. And um, and so when I started thinking about this when I got into recovery, it's like, why did I always feel like I was in charge and taking care of people? It's because I was. And um, it was very difficult and very challenging to be sort of in high school and being the head of the household. And um, I can't say that there weren't any adults in the house because my sister was like 15 and her 24-year-old boyfriend moved in with us. So, um, but this just speaks to the level of insanity that really had started to take hold of my family. My mother's drinking, as it progressed, um, things just became more insane. I became more insane. And uh, so I was determined to sort of take charge of my life and uh, bring it all back. I should take a look at my watch. Make sure I don't go over. Okay, so this next picture, oh, me in my cap and gown. Graduation, high school. Yeah, um, because I had sort of, decided that that was going to be a turning point in my life. I was going to move out, come out, and sort of be my own person. And so I did that all in one week. I got a job at the um, College High. That was a retail clothing store in the mall. And um, I had no sense of color or fashion, but I decided I needed a career. And um, so I moved out and sort of took care of myself. I thought that would solve the problem. It did not. Um, because I was constantly being drawn back to the insanity that was going on at home. Um, and I would rush home to sort of rescue things when things fell into disrepair. And um, it became uh, very um, difficult. I contemplated suicide quite often. And, um, and it's really a miracle that I survived. Um, so I decided I, um, I needed to fix that. I should probably stop at this point and show you um, a picture of my drug of choice. And that would be this gelatinous ooze, which is a chemical in our body. And it is known as, um, I'm sorry, I'm having a difficult time today. I wanted to be um, more than I was when I was growing up. And so I sort of had an addictive behavior from the very start. And um, and it's hard sometimes to look back on my family, but I want to stop and I want to say I'm not a victim. I've never been a victim. And I've let go of a lot of those feelings. Because when I first came to Al-Anon, I felt very done on. I don't feel that way today. The steps have freed me from that feeling. And so I'm able to sort of move in and out of different groups today at work, at play, in my family, in my relationship with my partner. And um, all that really is a gift of the program. But this gelatinous ooze is adrenaline, and that's my drug of choice. And I was drawn to it. And alcoholics are a great source of adrenaline, <laughs> if you didn't know that already. <laughs> and so I would sort of um, be drawn to alcoholics, because they provided the insanity that I had been used to growing up. So here is the rec room. That is the first gay bar that I went to. And in that bar, it's sort of dilapidated and falling down, but that's okay because the outsides look like my insides felt. Um, I found my first external solution to my internal problem. And he was sitting on his bar stool and his name was John. 
And um, he was the first of many alcoholics that I would encounter and that would sort of fix me for the moment. And, um, and it didn't work. Um, so I found another. And that one didn't work. So I found another. And this was a pattern that I repeated many times over. And I decided that there was a problem, a very serious problem that needed to be addressed. And the problem was, that's right, the Capitol Dome again, Sacramento was the problem. I needed to leave. So I joined the Navy. That's me and my little outfit. And um, (laughs) because it seemed like a solution at the time, it would get me out of town. I would find a new life. I would do new things. I'd go to fabulous places, join the Navy, see the world, you know, be all I could be, all that stuff that we hear and and so I, I went and started off in fabulous locations like uh, that's Disney World because I was in Orlando, Florida, and I was in boot camp there. In the next slide, you will see me with my company in boot camp. That's me standing there with the L flag. I was a flag bearer. They called us the fag bearers because me and these three other girls who were in the company, we all marched in the front of the company with the flags. In the Navy, when you um, passed an inspection, they awarded your company with a flag. So I carried the L flag because we had passed the locker inspection. So in secret, they called me Laverne because I had the L. And then the physical fitness uh, inspection was carried by Penelope. And then, uh, of course, the M flag for our military bearing award was carried by Mary. And so we all uh, marched in the front of the company, and I got to be the cheerleader I always wanted to be in the Navy. And uh, so I eventually moved on to other fabulous locales. The swamp would be um, Mississippi. And then this skyline is the Motor City, Detroit. So as you can see, I went to fabulous places in the Navy. Um, Detroit's very profound for me, though, because it's eventually where I got recovery. So let me tell you how I got here to the program of Al-Anon. So I'm 2,400 miles away in Detroit thinking, okay, my family's business no longer affects me. I'm free. I am no longer bound by that responsibility that I had when I was growing up. But I would get these phone calls, and of course they were just erratic phone calls. Sometimes my mother would be drunk, sometimes my family would be screaming, um, and I was a bundle of nerves. I was a wreck. And so I would consistently be drawn to um, that drama, and uh, I was really grateful that my first sponsor, here he is in his little Navy outfit. He was in the Navy, too. Uh, Dale was my first sponsor, and he 12-stepped me in this program of Al-Anon. So I went to my first meeting, and it was wonderful. It was wonderful, and it was awful at the same time. First of all, there was many things I did not understand. You all spoke a different language, which I did not understand. The other thing was um, there was laughter going on. I didn't comprehend that because, you know, alcoholism is a serious business. Drunk is not funny, and I didn't understand how we're supposed to get them sober if we're spending our time sitting here laughing. But the other thing was that there seemed to be a peace and a calm that I did not know anything about, and I desperately wanted to know what that was about. So I stuck around, and thank God I stuck around. That was actually in October of 1984. I had my first slip in November of 1984. And so I know there's probably alcoholics in the room going, how do they do that? Well, I'll tell you. My mother called, and she had actually hit a bottom, and she was in bed, and she would not get out of bed. She... um, she was incapacitated and um, was convinced that she was dying uh, physically and spiritually, and so she just decided she would never get out of bed ever again. And so, of course, my brothers and sisters called me, and they urged me to come home. 
And eventually the Red Cross called me and said, you have a family emergency, you need to go home. And so I went home, and um, when I came in to see my mother, she um, was in fact in bed and had been for, for some time. And I thought, this is great. I'm in Al-Anon now. Certainly I can just convey to her what these 12 steps are. She's going to go to AA, get her life together. It'll be fabulous. I mean, I had it all scripted, but she didn't get her copy. So um, that wasn't the reaction that I got, and so I started to revert to what I knew, which was to pull out all the manipulating tools that I had, which was, you know, um, the guilt. The children really need you to get out of bed. You really need to get out of that bed. You know, I reverted to um, threats. You better get out of the bed or else. You better get out of that bed or else. And my favorite, which is the passive-aggressive sort of, I'm not going to speak to you unless you get out of that bed. You know, since then, of course, I've learned all about being passive-aggressive. My sponsor talked to me and said, well, Christopher, if you're actively, actively giving someone the silent treatment, how passive-aggressive is that? So um, I really watch out. That's one of my signals that I'm reverting to, uh, to what I used to do, and I don't want to do that anymore. Thank God for the course of the steps. I've been free. Let's talk about the steps before I have no time left. Okay, here they are, all 12 of them. I saw them when I came here, and I said... Oh, no, 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 no. I will do that one there. I don't need that one there. don't have any amends to make. And um, so this sort of pick-and-choose approach did not work. It did not work for me. Um, I found myself um, in trouble every time I tried to take that approach. And so eventually I um, learned about what it takes to be a recovering member in the program of Al-Anon. And one major element that it takes is willingness and an open mind and um, and then, there, of course, there are many of the other suggestions that we hear, like get a sponsor and go to meetings and all those things. And, um, and through that, I was able to dispel some of the myths of Al-Anon. So I'd like to just point out a couple of the myths today. One of them is, and it was, we talked about it last night when I was visiting Patty and Sue, is um, this is not meant to embarrass you. This is so we can get to know you better. Actually, there is a certain level of embarrassment that comes in by having to raise your hand. It's just part of the package. There's no way around it. But what happens is it's a humbling experience, one of many that is yet to come. And what we find is through these humbling experiences, we hopefully gain humility. And this is a very, very important element to any long-term recovery, regardless of what program you're speaking of. Because uh, without humility, um, I believe I can do it myself. And when I start with down that path, I'm in trouble, which we'll talk about in a second, because I did get in trouble with that sort of mentality. Um, the second myth I want to dispel is that Al-Anon is a selfish program. Okay, Al-Anon is not a selfish program. I mean, I, I sort of bought into it for a little while, but then I thought, well, I've got all this great, great advice. I'm giving it out freely. You know, how selfish is that? You know, and I, and I gave you advice, you know, and I gave you great advice, you know, and talked about you at length. You know, if you happen to be in the room to get the advice, that was a bonus. Um, <laughs> Al-Anons, when gathered together as a group, spend their time talking about alcoholics. A huge myth. Huge. I mean, if the methodology of my little speak up here hasn't already convinced you that I'm absolutely insane, I don't know what else will. Okay? So the process of recovering from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body is very time-consuming. And I assure you, it leaves very little time to talk about you. Very little time. When I pack my bags to go to the Al-Anon meeting, there is no room left in my purse for your issues. 
Okay. Now, this myth, and this is really, really one of my favorites. <laughs> These 12 steps are but suggested. Yes, that's true. That's what we say. Um, but the reality is that I suggest that you take in a breath after you exhale one and continue, ad infinitum, if you like that feeling of consciousness and if you would like to continue living. You know, it's really that simple. Um, you know, the word pull on a ripcord when you're jumping out of plane, that's a good suggestion to follow. I had a, I mean, I had a sponsee recently who said, do I really have to do this? I mean, after all, there are suggestions. There are no have-tos in Al-Anon, and I could not argue. That is true. There are no have-tos. But we have damn well betters ad infinitum. We have plenty of those. <laughs> so think of it as one of those. I, um have been um, blessed uh, in that I, I was able to get recovery and I was able to work through some of the steps. I did one, two, three. Um, I need to point out that the meetings in Detroit are very different than they are probably anywhere else, but certainly different than they are here in San Jose when I moved here. And that is that there are tables set up and whatever step you're on is what table you go to. And this was a very difficult concept for me to grasp because I was always at the first step table and that made me mad. Um, because I wanted to be over at the 12-step table where I was sure they were talking about how really to keep people sober. And so um, I would work my way up and I would get frustrated because I would get to three and that's where I would stop and then I would have to go back to one. Um, and I did this one, two, three, one, two, three for a very long time. Um, I was uh, asked to speak at a conference as an Al-Anon speaker in, in 1987. So by this time I had like three years in Al-Anon and um, my sponsors said that I couldn't except the invitation, because I hadn't worked the steps. I was still on three, three years into the program. You know, I thought it was like a step-a-year program thing. And, um, and uh, how can you really talk about the steps? How can you transmit something you haven't got? And so uh, we agreed that I would do my fourth and fifth, and I could go to this conference. So um, he just sent me the most wonderful email the other day, because he reminded me um, of my first fifth step in that little CRX car that he had driving to Toronto was a four-hour trip, and that was where I um, got to relieve myself of the burdens that I had been carrying for so long. And what I got to get from that experience was that so much of what I had done before um, was circumstance. Circumstances is what brought me to Al-Anon. And um, if you stay here long enough, your circumstances improve. But that doesn't mean that I'm not still a co-alcoholic. It's very important that I keep that in mind. And I call myself a co-alcoholic because when I arrived in 1984, that's what we call ourselves, at least in Detroit. And uh, words like codependent and, and other words didn't really come about until later. And, um, but I like the term co-alcoholic because it really, for me, sort of defines the parallel that I have, the symbiotic relationship I have with alcoholics. When they're on a roller coaster ride up, so am I. When they're on the roller coaster ride down, I'm sitting right next to them. And the reason I'm feeling like I have no control is because oftentimes I am not driving. I want to think I'm driving. I want to think I'm in control. I want to think that I'm really running the show. But the reality is that control is an illusion. I finally did get the first step. Stepping back just a second, uh, I got the first step very clearly uh, and recognized that I had no power, no control over what my um, alcoholic does. Um, I eventually moved here to San Jose, 
So there's the skyline. Of course, that was the skyline in 1987. So, you know, just pretty much the Fairmont. Everything else is sort of smallish. And um, if this had a soundtrack, maybe you'd hear Dionne Warwick singing, you know, If You Know the Way. So here I am. And um, it was a great fellowship. Really embraced me, made me feel welcome, uh, made me feel cared for. And it's really what I needed at that time because I was going through some serious stuff, serious stuff in my life. And I really needed the support of fellow co-alcoholics to pull me through that. And uh, when I trusted in that power, uh, because there were times when I didn't feel like I had a God in my life, when I trusted that the power could reside in the group, even if temporarily, I was okay. And so I would go to meetings to get that power because there is no substitute for meetings. You know, along the lines of not being able to transmit something you haven't got, by the same token, you cannot receive something you're not present to get. And so um, there is no substitute for meetings. If you're, if you're not making uh, the meetings of Al-Anon, you're definitely selling yourself short. Uh, so many of the suggestions that we get are so very good. And as long as I maintain an open mind and continue to work towards those, I'm actually doing pretty well. So, um, so what happened when I got to San Jose? Well, one, I met my partner, Rob. So I'll introduce him. We've actually been together for a while now. Um, Rob uh, is an alcoholic, I can say that. And, um, and so great, you know, I got another alcoholic in my life. But I'm improving. This one's in recovery. Okay. So um, that was a new thing for me because I hadn't had recovering alcoholics in my life. I'd only had using ones. Even um, when I first moved to San Jose, I grasped onto an active Coke user, and that was, you know, another story. So, um, so this was really new and interesting. You know, um, we decided we were going to go slow. We weren't going to move in together or anything like that. And then that Loma Prieta thing happened. And so he moved in with me for just a short time while he looked for his own place. And to this day, I still have to throw the classifieds at him once in a while and say, look harder. But it takes what it takes, and if it's meant to be, it's meant to be. And so um, I, I have let go a lot of trying to um, decide what's best. So, you know, moving through the steps, you know, I already talked about my fourth and fifth, and the sixth step talks about being entirely ready to have God remove these defects of character. It's important for me to be entirely ready at all times, not pick and choose which defects I want him to remove because I do that too. And that, of course, predicts step seven, which talks about humbly asking him to remove these shortcomings. If I'm just saying, no, this is what you need to take, but don't take this one because I really like that one. Well, that's not humbly. And then um, the eighth step, we talk about um, making a list of amends. And I need to tell you that by this time, by the time I got to the eighth step, my sponsor had moved. Dale, my sponsor, had moved to San Diego. So um, I decided I would just do this by myself. You know, I didn't need a sponsor right away anyways. And so um, I set about to do my eighth and ninth step. And what I sort of read was that I needed to make a list of all the people who had harmed me. And I need to become willing to give them all. And so in my ninth step, I actually did that. I actually went to people and said, you know, I need to sit down and talk with you. I need to let you know this is what you did to me. And it's okay. I'm over it. (laughs) People did not accept that as graciously as I expected they would. (laughs) And if you want to talk about humility, let's talk about going back and making your amends for the way you made your amends. What I need to remember is that co-alcoholism is a disease of the mind and body. And um, therefore, the answer is not there. 
Um, walking through the steps without the IVA sponsor is akin to walking through a bad neighborhood. You do not do it unchaperoned. Uh, and my mind is certainly a bad neighborhood. So I try and remember that and can keep connected to other co-alcoholics. And, um, and I did use the word disease. That's always raises eyebrows sometimes because I don't know that people grasp the, the seriousness of co-alcoholism and how debilitating it is. And you have a hard time with the, the medical sort of connotation that's attached to the word disease. Think of it as dis-ease. Co-alcoholics are certainly dis at dis-ease. We can, we can probably agree on that. So if that's what works for you, then grasp onto that. But co-alcoholism is certainly a disease, and I really wanted to recover from it. So I did what I was told in the rooms here, and I, um, I'm blessed today. I'll fast forward because I really have li very little time left. But I finally made it to Sacramento, which is um, which was my real homecoming. I got out of the Navy because I was stationed here at Moffett Field until 91. And um, when I got out, I said, okay, I'm moving back to Sacramento, <clears throat> which Rob, of course, um, jumped on the bandwagon wholeheartedly. And um, we moved Sacramento, and um, that's where I'm at now. I'm in a career that's very different from the Navy. I'm the... Um, I coordinate the, the Gay and Lesbian Center at, the, at UC Davis right now. And um, so that's a huge change, obviously, from what I was doing here. Um, and I would like to tell you it's a huge improvement, but at times it is really not. But what I've got now is the steps. And more importantly, or as equally importantly, I should say, is I've got the traditions. Because when I first got here, I was told that the traditions are to the group what the steps are to the co-alcoholic. And I don't believe that anymore because I've been able to apply those traditions in my life as a singular person and find relief from the insanity. Um, if anything, I believe maybe, okay, the steps keep us from committing suicide and maybe the traditions can keep us from committing homicide. But, um, but I, I use them. Uh, we were talking about this last night. I've really got some stuff going on at work and, and it's really been insane. And so I've looked at the traditions and, and what jumps out is Tradition 10. We were just actually talking about Tradition 10 last night at a meeting I was at. And um, that is that um, we have no opinion on outside issues. So at work, we have like a mission statement, which I sort of believe in because otherwise I probably wouldn't be there. And so all this drama that's been going on, which is sort of fed into my, you know, adrenaline, um, doesn't have anything to do with what's going on at work. And yet I insist on voicing my opinion and letting people know what I think and how I feel. And um, I don't need to do that. In fact, it's probably a more sane idea if I don't do that. Um, because uh, people don't always come over to my way of thinking. And that's what makes me crazy. Because I want people to change. I want them to invest their thoughts and actions into what I would have them do. And that is a very dangerous place for this co-alcoholic to go. So I've been working on letting that go, and it's been very challenging for me. It's been very challenging. Um, and I don't know that I would uh, be able to do it without the support of the fellowship that I have um, in the program of Alaron. Um, I have a home group. It's actually in Davis, and I really love the meetings there. They're very small. There's only like, I, mean, I think there's like five people in my home group, um, and it fluctuates to maybe six. <laughs> and um, <laughs> but I'm grateful and I'm going to wrap this up because uh, I don't want the tape to run out but I want to point out the one thing that I really have gotten from the program of Al-Anon and that would be this it's a mirror and it's 
the beautiful thing about that is that if we look in there, we see different things. If you all look in there, you see all of you. And I certainly have been given that. I have been given the wisdom that you have imparted on me through your experience, strength, and hope. And as long as I remain open to that, I'm actually doing okay. When I look at it, I see myself. That's another thing I've gotten that you've all given me. You've given me a sense of self and self-worth and self-love and hope. I have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body that I lived in every day. And being free from the bondage of that has actually come from all of you. And so there is no way that I could possibly repay you back for what you've given me. But what you've asked me to do is to use the 12th step to carry that message to other people who have families of alcoholics who are suffering. And that's, that's my responsibility. For that, I'm responsible. So, uh, and part of that was being asked to come here today and share with all of you. So hopefully we did a little bit of that today. Thanks.